We're seeing if we can get it lit a little bit back there. It's it's really dark. I can hardly see you. Nope. Okay. It's okay. (laughs) Thanks for trying. (laughs) We'll wait a couple of more minutes till make sure everybody's here. But be be aware of waiting. (laughs) You know? Um, Be aware of waiting mind. Waiting for something to happen. Waiting for me to talk. And um, really see if you can see the mind that is always waiting for a better moment in the future. Is the bell ringer here? Wonderful. Okay.
Drum sound rises on the air. It's throb, my heart. A voice inside the beat says, I know you're tired, but come. This is the way. I know you're tired, but come. This is the way. I know that after a day that for some of you may have felt absolutely endless, <laughs> there is some degree of fatigue, of tiredness. And even for those of you who did not feel it to be an endless day, had many moments of delight or of ease or peace, still, it's its own thing to have to be with oneself the way that we have when we practice in this way. To not be able to absorb into the usual things we absorb into. To not be able to flee all that much into our habits and addictions. But to pretty much choose to stay very close to oneself, come what may. It can feel fatiguing. It can feel tiring. And come. This is the way. This is by, um, by Rumi. I really love it because it's so compassionate. I know you're tired. You know? And I guess this is not Rumi. This is me. I know how sincere and committed everyone in this room is to still be here at this point. I am really grateful for the fact that you're interested in this practice, that you're continuing with this practice, because it graces not just one's own life. It graces everyone that we come into contact with as well, and maybe even those we don't. Now you're tired, but come. This is the way. We talk in this practice about the way or a way, the road, the path. We talk about path a lot. And implied in this word path or way or road is that it's going somewhere, that there's a direction. We're not um, just going back and forth on our walking path which looks so strange if you're not familiar with it. One has to say this is really not a cult. It just looks kind of on the odd side, walking back and forth. And, you know, even when you're doing it, it can feel odd. You can feel like like an animal in a cage walking back and forth, pacing. Pacing until someone lets you out, which in this case is the bell letting you out. But there is indeed a sense of direction on this path that we are on, despite the walking back and forth. And that direction is from suffering to ease of well-being, from agitation and inner chaos to peacefulness, from confusion 
and delusion to wisdom and understanding. This is the path that we are on in this practice. In the beginning, it doesn't at all look like a path. We can't really see the path itself. We just are doing our best and going on whatever wherewithal that we can. But we don't really see it as a path. One can have many, many, many moments of confusion and not a whole lot of clarity. One can have many moments of agitation and not a whole lot of calm. One can have many moments of suffering, of anguish, and not a whole lot of happiness and joy. It's not so easy to see that it is a path. And it's almost akin to, it is akin to, an unlit trail through the woods where one is unable to see the path for oneself and so one is groping in the dark or relying on the faith and expertise of others. People do get lost in these woods from time to time. They are as well marked as can be, but... um, I have gotten lost in these woods myself. I once had to spend a night, and it was cold. It was um, during a three-month retreat here, so it was maybe October when I decided that I wanted to take a good long walk. And it was a really, really long walk. I um, didn't get back until morning. And, um, And I survived. Obviously, I'm here talking about it, which is the good news. But it's dark out there. It can be so dark. So it's kind of like that. We don't know where we're going. And we have to rely and trust others when we're in that position. The question is always, what brought us here? what brings us here and what brings us back here over and over again. Well, one thing that brings us here is some degree of faith. For those of you who have been coming over and over again, there's a strong sense of faith that you know that this is a good place to be. For those of you who are here for the first time, One gets one's faith in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's childhood experiences. Oftentimes people come here to meditate because of having really stronger, interesting, or powerful experiences when one was a child and not knowing how to understand them, but it being so different than the usual conventional reality that... One grows up and becomes a meditator. You know, adolescence is in between. But one, when one grows up, becomes a, a practitioner. We can also find ourselves here because of experiences of loss in our lives and sometimes feeling desperate. You know, faith is seen as a really good thing. Faith and trust that 
this practice is beneficial, is seen as a really good thing, but whatever brings one to the practice is a really good thing. And sometimes that is indeed a sense of desperation. Hitting one's head against the wall too many times and really wanting, needing, having to find a way out. And so coming to a practice that actually involves a path, a direction. Sometimes we stumble upon this path. We don't even know much about it, but a friend tells us that they've been, and it's a good idea. Or we pick up a book, a Dharma book, and then we look in the back for an address, you know, for resources, and and that's why we find ourselves here. All sorts of things find um, find us here. I know for me it was really all of these things, and my stumbling onto this path <clears throat> was having um, bumped into a teacher who doesn't come to IMS anymore, but um, is my colleague at in Cambridge at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, Larry Rosenberg. I thought he was somebody um, I knew. And so in a health food store, I bumped into him and I started chatting. I started talking to him. It took a while to figure out he wasn't the person that I thought he was. <laughs> but he was definitely a good person to, to bump into because he had just come back from a long retreat here. And I was so inspired by that. I felt like, I don't know, I had hit the jackpot. I felt like, ah, one can live a contemplative life as an ordinary person. You You don't have to ordain. You can do whatever you would like in terms of relationship or in terms of creativity or in terms of work. And you can live a deeply contemplative life at the same time. So it was incredibly inspiring to hear about his experiences. And shortly after, of course, I I did make my way here. Years ago, there was someone on one of my retreats who had come from Russia and... Shortly after she had come here from Russia, um, she found herself here. And after, and she just was like everybody else, just practicing, you know, like everybody else. But after a few days, she um, it became really apparent that she didn't know that this was a meditation center um, because of the language barrier. She thought it was a spa. <laughs> she took it really well. <laughs> And she actually stayed and she began to love the practice. And then <laughs> she was around for years. <laughs> so it doesn't always matter how we get here. <laughs> Gradually, through paying attention, through the practice of paying attention, there are glimmers of light on this path, and we begin to see that indeed it is a path. And eventually, the path is fully lit up. There is a really clear sense of direction. We're not confused about direction anymore. We might have other moments of confusion about this or that, 
but there's a sense of recognition that this is indeed a path, a, a way. And we find ourselves more confident and sure-footed. The path is gradually illuminated as awareness lights the path that has always been here, that has always been present, but we've missed it because of so many different reasons, conditionings. We've missed it, and here it is. I travel to Seattle every so often to teach. I've been there a number of times now, and every time I go, people are always telling me about the mountains that surround Seattle, and one really big one, I guess, Mount Mount Rainier. Rainier? Yeah. I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen this looming mountain that I, I hear all sorts of things about, because every time I go, um, it's foggy, and um, it's just not there. But because I assume that um, everybody in Seattle is not completely deluded, and that they have seen the mountain to report it back to those of us who have not, that the mountain really is there. Now, I still would like to see it. You know, I aspire to see this mountain, but I do have the faith that it's there. And it's always been there, always been there in our, in our lifetime anyway. As we practice the path is made visible to us. As the path is gradually illuminated, there is a sense of greater trust. And as this trust develops and matures, somebody could say to us, there is no path. You know, like there are no mountains. There is no path. And we know that that cannot be so because we've had our own experiences because our faith has been tested. It's not blind faith that ever is seen as wonderful in the Buddhist teachings. It's tested faith so that it becomes experiential and authentic and real and tangible. And what we know is really what we know because it comes from the inside With this kind of trust, with this kind of emerging faith, we are more able and willing to abide with the ups and downs that are inevitable. Inevitable in our lives, inevitable, of course, because these ups and downs are inevitable in our lives, inevitable in our practice as well. We're not quite as thrown. We're not quite as caught in cycles of spinning out as if we were sneakers in a dryer. That was my very first experience of being on retreat. I can remember it so clearly. I felt like I was a sneaker in a dryer, the sneaker hitting the door of the dryer over and over again. And yet I came out in good shape. And that's what inspired me to continue to practice. So we're willing to abide with the ups and downs without getting off track, clinging to the ups and getting lost in the downs. 
There may be, indeed, the same states of mind, but we are relating to them so differently that they they don't feel the same. We're not perceiving them the same. Same states of mind, and yet, on a certain level, they're okay. We can make our way through them. We can stand our ground. We can sustain our attentiveness, come what may. So I want to give you an example of what I mean by path and not path. One example of path is having an experience of despair, feeling despairing, feeling um, the mental state, experiencing the mental state of despair without a sense of path. If we don't have a sense of path, inevitably we are going to think about why we are despairing. We are going to build up those thoughts into perhaps more than what they are. We are going to believe in those thoughts and get behind them and justify them. Remembering path, remembering direction, remembering to observe. Same feeling of despair, same mental state, but we don't necessarily let it take us where we don't want to go. It is just despair, just what it is in the moment that it is occurring in. It still may not feel good. It may feel intensely unpleasant. But we don't get behind it. It's a moment of despair rather than a life of despair. We don't give it a past. Because we don't give it a past, we don't give it a future. And in this way, we are on the path of awakening. We are remembering the path. Another example might be someone criticizing you. Happens to everybody. So feeling criticized, being criticized, without a sense of path, we nourish the feelings that arise. We repeat the criticism. The person may have criticized us once. We repeat it a million times. The person perhaps only meant to criticize us once. We repeat it. doesn't even matter what the person's intention was. We repeat that criticism to ourselves over and over and over again. And there are the accompanying feelings and mental states and unpleasantness of it. We feel hurt, we feel anger, we feel resentment. Sometimes it feels almost pleasurable how to get them back. Those kinds of thoughts. How can I convince them that they're wrong? And sometimes that gives us a sense of empowerment, at least in our heads, not in direct communication, but in our heads thinking about what we can do. Lost in our defensiveness. With a sense of path, we can see the difference between awareness of and involvement in. Awareness of 
unbiased awareness and an over-entanglement, an over-involvement in what somebody else said may be a little bit true, may have a kernel of truth, may be a lot true, but there's a way in which we can't take the wisdom out when we're overly entangled. If there, as, if there is anything to learn, it's really hard to learn. When there's a sense of path, there's a kind of intimacy. We can encourage a kind of inner spaciousness. And within this inner spaciousness, when there is awareness, there is a natural dissolving of the thoughts and feelings and emotions. And then we can ask the question, what is a wise way to respond? Do we need to talk to that person? Do we need to not have anything to do with that person? Do we need to protect ourselves? Do we need to let go? But wise response comes out of allowing the emotions and the thoughts to abate some so that a wisdom can have some space to emerge. We are learning to trust in awareness. This is both an individual path. Everybody has to make it their own. A unique path for each one of us. And it's a universal path at the same time. I think we have to honor our uniqueness. And as I said, truly make our way into making this practice our own. Coming from the inside rather than always from the outside. We're different and at the same time we're the same. We have different work, different health situations, different families different history, different backgrounds, different relationships or or lack of relationships, different societal pressures. We are really different. We have different strengths and different limitations. So because of this, this is not a cookie-cutter approach. There are general principles to the practice that are offered to everyone. And then this is where individual contact with the teacher comes in really handy because it's different for each practitioner. And yet, for all of us, the direction is away from suffering, is moving away from sorrow, oftentimes by turning towards sorrow. That's our way out. But the direction itself is a release from sorrow, from suffering. And this is something to keep in mind amidst the ups and downs. I feel like practice kind of goes like this. You know, it doesn't go like that. It goes like this. It's on an upper trajectory for sure. But there are a lot of ups and downs along the way. The how of this is truly not instinctual. Because instinctually we tend to move towards comfort. We tend to want comfort more than freedom sometimes. 
That's kind of how we're hardwired. It's interesting because practice really, really um, melts the hard wiring. But it is how we begin and how we are. And what we have to work with is this tendency to value comfort over inner freedom. As organisms, we tend to move towards pleasure as an end unto itself. And of course, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. There's nothing wrong with moments of pleasure. But if we're trying to get more out of pleasure than it can offer, if we're trying to get something lasting out of pleasure, it turns into pain, doesn't it? In other words, we find ourselves on a path of discontent rather than of contentment and peacefulness. As we continue to practice, we learn different ways to be, and we awaken into wisdom. We develop the capacity to make wiser choices, wiser decisions. Some of you, this is, has become quite well known. Some of you may be aware of what is called an autobiography in five short chapters by Portia Nelson, who was a singer and songwriter, as well as an actress and an author. So chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes more forever to find a way out. Chapter two, These are very short chapters. I walk down the the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I am in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. We are learning to walk down another street. This path of practice takes us in a direction that is far away from misery. Instead of obeying our conditioning, we unleash a kind of vitality and inner creativity. And we are, as I said, able to make wiser choices in our lives. When the path is unlit, and there are just barely glimmers. And, you know, because the path goes like this, basically upward trajectory, but with a lot of dips along the way, at times it feels like the path is completely lit up. It's neon lights, and we know. And then, at another point, it's unlit entirely, perhaps because of a great loss in life or 
something like that. It just feels incredibly dark. And then other times it's glimmers. You know, it's just little glimmers of lights. And when it's dark and when there are only these glimmers, the path can appear to be not a path at all. It can appear to be utterly fruitless. I think it's important to remember that there is a very long path of confusion in our pasts. The Buddha said something that is kind of mind-blowing. He said a few things that kind of like your, your head blows off kind of thing. He said, ignorance is beginningless. Now, what does that mean? We always are interested in beginnings and endings. Beginningless. You, know, you don't have to figure this out with your mind because your, your mind will truly blow off. Your head will truly fly away if you try to figure it out with your mind. But just this sense of confusion, having been in our past forever, perhaps, forever. And here we are now, here now, this lifetime. And when I say that, I'm not implying you should believe in other lifetimes. But just now, this lifetime, having discovered the path, and then actually having the chance to practice, it is miraculous. It is amazing. Even in those times when we can't quite see where we are going, there is a time in practice where our faith becomes unshakable. Nothing can shake us from what we know to be true. But great patience and perseverance is called for, is necessary until this unshakable faith comes along. What we can do is to water the seeds of the practice, to fertilize the practice, and to let go of results. This is by Ajahn Chah called Let the Tree Go, Grow. Ajahn Chah was a wonderful, powerful Thai meditation master who died quite, quite a while ago now. He says, the Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it. Just as you cannot force the growth of a tree you have planted, the tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant and be responsible for your own If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then, whether it takes one or one hundred or one thousand lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. I did say you don't need to be 
to believe in other lifetimes. But sometimes it's really, really good to get the most vast perspective possible, whether it's true or not, just to let go a little bit of being bound by time. When we begin our practice, in a sense we begin a new life, and there are countless practitioners who have begun practice at many different ages. I have someone at home who began her practice when she was um, when she was 55, and she took to it and after that sat 17 three-month retreats in a row. She died at the age of 92 last November. Her life was well spent. Her life was well spent. I mean, she didn't just do that. She was also incredibly generous and a benefactor to many and had an extraordinarily kind heart. But she didn't begin practice until she had had many other different experiences in her life. It doesn't matter when we begin. It matters that we continue. I have a friend who practiced for, for quite a while, for 15 years actually, but she was never serious about it. And then after 15 years of kind of playing around with the practice, she decided that she had to really get down to it. And she did. And completely different experience, completely different life to dedicate herself in the way that she did. Now, you know, of course, no one can fault those for 15 years of making her way into the practice. Those 15 years were not, not well spent. But to see in her the difference between kind of fooling around and actually applying herself was really so beautiful to witness, just simply to witness. There's this little comic I have. It's, um, it's of a, a monk with a cell phone. And I actually found this comic really a long time ago, so the cell phone is really huge. You know, it's one of those really big, old-fashioned cell phones. So he's on his cushion, and he's clearly talking to someone, maybe in the middle of a sitting, even. And he says, I'm crazed with this noble path. Let me get back to you. (laughs) Yeah. As much commitment that is possible, that's the way we want to go. We don't want to be half-hearted in our commitment. And the beautiful thing about this path, this practice, is that we can always begin again. That's what's possible for us, is that we can always begin again. There's a Turkish proverb that says, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, turn back. No matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, turn back. We can hear this in really strong and dramatic ways in our lives, and we can hear it when we are attempting to be attentive, and we've gone off on a train of thinking that we do have some choice to let go of. That's the wrong road. Turning back is just simply opening to the here and now. 
In a way, there's no turning back to be done. It's recognizing that this is a new moment right here and right now. Can we meet it on its own terms? So what is, quote, the right road? It is the Noble Eightfold Path. Each path factor has the word sama in front of it. So, you know, it's wise speech and wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise steadiness of attention, wise intention, and wise um, view. These are the Eightfold Path factors. And all of them begin with this word sama that's sometimes translated as right and is better, I feel, translated as wise. Based on the truth of things, based on what is going to bring most light, most ease to all areas in our life, your life is your practice, illuminating all arenas and areas in our lives. The first three, speech and action and livelihood, speech that is truthful and kind and useful and unifying, action that is non-harmful and beneficial. Livelihood means work that is not going to harm anyone, work that is not unethical, which frees the heart from guilt and remorse. So this first third of the Noble Eightfold Path, of course, all has to do with action, speech, livelihood, and action itself being beneficial rather than harmful. The next three are wise effort, wise samadhi, and wise mindfulness. And samadhi means sustained steadiness. It's deepening and purifying very deep levels of conditioning. Wise effort is the effort to be mindful. And we are mindful of basically this body-mind experience. The third section is that of wise view, how things work viewing phenomena, viewing ourselves, viewing one another as nature, not as separate from nature, but as nature itself. Wise intention is, we were speaking about this in the Q&A this afternoon, is cultivating loving-kindness, cultivating the intentionality of compassion, of caring for pain, of caring for suffering, whether it lies within our own hearts or in the hearts of others, encouraging compassion in all directions, not just for others and not for ourselves, not just for for ourselves and not for others, but compassion, mercy for all beings, including ourselves, learning how to hold suffering gently until it changes on its own, And cultivating generosity, cultivating letting be, letting go, cultivating releasing and relinquishing, practicing the art of non-grasping. So this is in the realm of waking up and living one's practice. 
This eightfold path is a traditional way of referring to the path. And there is another way. In this other way, all path factors are actually in one. It is the path of non-avoidance, the path of non-resistance, the path of non-abandonment, embracing each moment regardless of content. That is all path factors being practiced as one path factor. Present with the difficult, without dwelling in the narrative, without dwelling in descriptions and thoughts about, the turning towards with the allies of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity and joy, going against our habits and patterns and tendencies gently and at the same time relentlessly a sustained kindness and wisdom. As we do, we recognize that there is indeed no such thing as a bad moment. There might be extremely painful, difficult content in that moment, but it is not a bad moment. There is no such thing as a bad retreat. Even retreats that are tumultuous and painful and difficult during moments Most retreats are not endlessly like that, but moments or periods of time can be so. But we don't see it as a bad retreat because we are learning all the time. And out of that learning, there is the fruit of loving kindness and greater wisdom and understanding that actually transforms our lives. Each moment is an invitation to be aware. Each moment is an invitation to not be as identified with our experiences, but to recognize that everything is just doing its own thing. I'll give you an example of non-identification. What I have noticed over the years is that Experienced practitioners, when they're sleepy in a sitting, they just stand up. It's simple because they're not so afraid of somebody seeing them as, you know, a lazy yogi or, or sleepy as if it's something so terrible that one is sleepy. So you just do what's necessary. You just stand up. And younger practitioners in, in this practice Oftentimes there's a shyness in standing or there's a self-consciousness or thinking other people will, will know you're sleepy, but everybody gets sleepy at some point or another. There's actually nothing more human. So it has to do with non-identification and then responding to the conditions that are right in front of us. We discover that less resistance to the unpleasant equals less suffering. As the path lights up, instead of relying on theory and obligation, as in, I should be mindful, people have told me I should be mindful, it's the popular thing, I'm in the in crowd, being mindful. You know, it's something that is an obligation. It becomes a love. It becomes a love. To be present, to love the here and now, is learned. It's an acquired taste. We acquire it in 
our continued efforts to practice. We want to be mindful with every fiber of our being. We are learning to trust in awareness instead of trusting in grasping, instead of trusting in accumulation, instead of trusting in discombobulation. We begin to trust in awareness. And we begin to know for ourselves that all happiness is found in awareness and not in changing phenomena. Lasting happiness can be found in awareness rather than that which is impermanent. And we develop a passion for life itself rather than attachment to the things in life. This is sometimes called the pathless path or path without a goal because it's not a path of gaining or an, or accumulating. It's not materialistic. I remember riding around in a car with someone who had um, been part of Est, which used to be something that a lot of people did in, in my world many, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. People in my world oftentimes got involved with Est. And I remember somebody... Um, who was also in the car, saying something like, well, you do S, so you're definitely going to find a parking space in Boston. It was hard to find parking in Boston. So you're going to find a parking space in Boston. I can really reassure you, you will not find a parking space (laughs) anywhere if you do this practice, but you may indeed find inner freedom. It's so much better. (laughs) I want to end with one more Um, teaching from Ajahn Chah, which is called The Simple Path. Traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. But the true Eightfold Path is within us, to eyes, to ears, to nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, examine them, and all the ways of nature will be revealed. The heart of the path is so simple, no no need for long explanations. Give up clinging, just rest with things as they are. That is all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques to develop samadhi and many kinds of vipassana investigation. But it all comes back to this, just let it be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? Do you dare? Do you dare? Let's sit for a moment together. Resting within yourself, resting within the moment, 
Resting within the body. Resting within this in-breath, this out-breath. Taking what may have been useful for you from what was just said and allowing it to come down into your body to nourish you. And what may not have been helpful, what may have been confusing just to let the residue go. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have peacefulness of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. so much for your kind attention. Um, Please walk, enjoy the walking, and we'll meet back in the hall at quarter of nine for our final sitting and a little bit of chanting that uh, during that sitting. So we will see you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.